This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, and displays of religious extremism and intolerance. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 238. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide into realms of the fantastic. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fresh new fiction with you and tell you the latest on my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 11 in my erotic fantasy novel, Homecoming. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 228 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and John's vacation has been disrupted by a magical mishap. Kate accidentally absorbed part of John's divine essence, transforming her into a succubus. This has temporarily equipped her with some new anatomy that she can't figure out how to get rid of, including horns, a tail, and a large phallus where her clit used to be. John and Kate went to downtown Bridger Heights on an emergency shopping trip, looking for clothes that could accommodate Kate's new appendages. It was there that Kate introduced John to Henri Bisset, a handsome Lantanese tailor who runs the fashion boutique Fossinet. Henri does outfits for all the drag queens in Ellentown, so he's well acquainted with making women's wear for clients as tall as Kate, not to mention accommodating special anatomical requirements. But as Kate turns her fitting into an impromptu strip tease, John realizes that isn't the only reason she came here. Kate has apparently had a crush on Henri since she was a teenager. With a piece of the goddess of lust and fertility inside her, Kate acts on that attraction. And as Aspira's essence flows through him, Henri is only too happy to reciprocate. As Henri reaches his climax, Kate reaches out with her essence and begins feeding on him, drawing off his life force just like a real succubus would have done. Unfortunately, Kate doesn't have the control of a mature succubus, so John has to step in, drawing Kate's essence into a tug-of-war while he plows into her. The three-way ends with all of them sated. Henri is asleep, drained by Kate's feeding, but thanks to John's quick action, the man is alive and well. Kate is unsettled at her own loss of control, and wonders if she has basically roofied her tailor. John tells her that Suspira's essence can't be accepted by someone who isn't in the right frame of mind to receive it. Kate may have lowered Henri's inhibitions, but she didn't make him do anything he didn't want to do. With time, Kate can learn to control the essence, just like John did, and in the meantime, he'll be here to help her hold it in check. Thus reassured, Kate joins John in cleaning up the mess they've created, while they wait for Henri to wake up.
Homecoming, A Tale of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 11 Henri slept for the next hour or so, which gave Kate and John plenty of time to clean up the mess they had made. There was no shower in the store, but they found a utility closet with a deep sink and plenty of soap, towels, and other cleaning supplies. After getting themselves washed and dressed again, John mopped the floor, and Kate hung up Henri's clothes and scrubbed down the pedestal with disinfectant. Henri finally woke while Kate was wiping him down with a soapy dish towel, and he quickly excused himself to the back rooms to finish the job. When he returned, he was fully and impeccably dressed once again. Nazen, he said, clapping his hands together over his chest. That was a very enjoyable diversion, mes amis, but I think we had best be about our business here. Catherine, if you could take off your clothes again, without attempting to seduce me, s'il vous plaît. Kate scoffed, putting a hand to her chest in mock outrage. Why, Henri? The very idea. But she stripped down again quickly enough, and they got to work. After taking Kate's measurements, and draping her with a dozen half-finished garments, Henri disappeared into the back and went to work on his sewing machines. He came back six times over the next two hours, making small adjustments here and there before scurrying off again. John went out to a local sandwich shop and brought back lunch for all three of them, Kate passed the time between fittings by reading a copy of the Ellentown Herald, and keeping up a vigorous and rambling instant-message conversation with Morgan. John was deeply curious how much Kate was telling Morgan about their adventures, but Kate just smiled coyly and hid the screen whenever he made to look over her shoulder. By three o'clock, Henri had made his final alterations, and Kate took her new clothes into the dressing room to put them on. John thought this was a little silly, since he'd been watching the entire process up to now, but Kate and Henri soberly agreed that the reveal was important. A few minutes later, Kate emerged, and John decided it had been worth the wait. Kate's new trousers were a soft, high-waisted corduroy in a rich chestnut brown, which clung tightly to her hips and buttocks and flattered every curve and muscle. A second layer of fabric had been added to the front placket, smoothing the lines around the groin and concealing the new bulge Kate had acquired there. There was a hole in back with concealed snap fasteners, which provided an easy exit for her tail without exposing the surrounding buttocks. Below the knees, the pants flared out a little, which allowed the cuffs to ride over the tops of Kate's leather boots. Up top, in place of the fuzzy green sweater, Kate now wore a lighter turtleneck in mustard yellow. Henri had layered a long-line tweed jacket over top of it. This covered the seat of her trousers, and thus the tail hole as well. The knitted beret covering her horns now looked like it matched the rest of her ensemble, and a sage-green scarf now added a final splash of contrasting color. Kate turned in a slow circle on the pedestal, bending into assorted poses that she had probably seen in magazines. "'What do you think?' she asked. John grinned appreciatively. "'Magnifique,' he said. "'Well done, Henri.' 
Henri bowed his head in acknowledgement of the praise. Check this out, Kate said. There's even a hidden sleeve back here for my tail. She lifted up the back of the jacket and pointed to a narrow slat in the inner lining. She slid her tail inside and reseated the jacket on her shoulders. There was no bulge in the outer fabric at all, nothing to hint at the extra anatomy hiding beneath it. Good idea, John said. You'll find that thing has a mind of its own until you get used to it. Henri brought out several additional tops and scarves, of varying weights and colors, giving Kate an assortment of mix-and-match options to go with the coat and trousers. Kate chose three of each, which Henri dutifully packaged up for her in a garment bag, along with the clothes she had worn in. Kate took the garment bag and kissed Henri full on the lips. Thank you so much, Henri. For everything. Henri blushed a little. It is I who should be thanking you, ma chérie. This was a day I shall long remember. Me too, Kate said. John drew out his wallet and handed Henri a black credit card marked with the holy symbol of Suspira. Put everything on here, monsieur, he said. Henri took the card, his eyes widening as he recognized the insignia. Oui, monsieur, it will just be a moment. He hurried out to the register, running his fingertips over the card with apparent fascination. Kate gave John a concerned look. Are you sure? This isn't going to be cheap. John waved it off. I don't have to pay rent at the temple. Consider it an early Yule present. He paused, then added, Besides, it's the least I can do for getting you into this mess. Kate walked up and pressed her body against his, placing her palms flat against his chest. This is not remotely your fault. I knew being with an incubus was going to affect me. Not like this, maybe, but it was still my choice. If you want to blame anything, blame my weirdo supernatural heritage. She kissed him then, lightly, and John returned it. He didn't say anything more on the matter. He knew that Kate was still unsettled about the revelation that she wasn't entirely human. She had spoken on a number of occasions about how she needed to dig into that past, to learn more about where she had come from, and what, exactly, her inhuman bloodline allowed her to do. But somehow she had never gone much further than talking about it. Probably, John thought, because she was afraid of what she might find. But that was Kate's life, and her call. If she wanted to keep discovering her superhuman bonus features through random accidents, well, at least John could be there to help make sense of things afterward. Henri came back with John's card and two copies of the receipt, one of which John signed and handed back to him. The tailor looked down at the signature, his head cocked in puzzlement. John H., what does it stand for? Nothing, John said, pocketing his card again. Not any more. Henri's eyes widened in realization, and his expression grew grave. He bowed again to John, very deeply this time. I am sorry for your loss, monsieur. I understand what it means to be rejected by those you called family. He smiled, but it was a bleak and weary expression born from scars that had faded long ago. We are both far from home this holiday, non? John returned Henri's bow, then stepped forward and offered his arms in friendship. 
Henri took them, gripping John's forearms just below the elbow. Home is where you make it, John said. Happy Medicama, Henri. Their adventures at Fossinet had taken up most of the day, and the homecoming parade was already in progress when John and Kate arrived back at Main Street. The overcast weather from that morning had moved on, leaving a blue sky scattered with puffy white clouds. Crowds lined the sidewalks on both sides, waving and cheering at the procession of floats, dancers, cheerleaders, and musicians. Both Kate and John were a good ten centimeters taller than the average person in the crowd. John scanned over their heads to the street signs above them, and quickly had a sinking realization. "'We're parked on the other side of the parade route,' he said. "'Yep,' Kate agreed, apparently unbothered by this. "'We'll have to walk up to Fifth, cut across, and come back down the other side.' She started walking in the direction indicated, navigating easily but slowly through the mass of people. "'Look at it this way. We'll get to see almost the whole parade in half the time.' "'I've never understood parades,' John admitted, as he followed in her wake. "'Standing out in the cold for hours just to watch other people walking?' What's the point? It's about community spirit, Kate said cheerfully. She waved a hand in the direction of the parade route. All the different clubs get to show off, and people come out to celebrate them. A lot of these kids, it's their only chance to be in the spotlight. John watched a float roll past with more than a dozen mimes on top. The banner on the side said, B.H. Drama Club. The mimes marched in formation atop the float, raising and lowering their legs in unison while pretending to play invisible drums, trumpets, and other instruments. The audience laughed and cheered as they went past, and John resisted the urge to roll his eyes. Do not make fun of the provincials, he told himself sternly. The balls and tournaments and dog-and-pony shows of the peerage might have been more familiar to him, but that didn't mean they were any less ridiculous. Let people enjoy things. That's what hedonism is all about. They had gone only about a block before John saw something that tripped his danger sense. A cluster of men and women holding signs at the front of the crowd. The men all wore stuffy-looking suits, the women conservative dresses of muted blue and gray. They stood in a tight group, flanked by a handful of uniformed police officers who looked like they'd rather be anywhere else. John leaned out over one of the barricades to get a better look at the signs. One read, Metacama equals idolatry. Another, Repent and be saved. A third said, No God but Eli. Redeemers, John thought. Great. Just great. He tapped Kate on the shoulder and pointed at the group. Kate looked, grimaced, then backtracked with him to a sheltered alcove in a storefront. The protesters from City Hall? Kate guessed. They must have moved when they weren't getting a reaction, John said. I don't think they'll turn violent with a bunch of cops around, but they could draw a lot of attention if they notice your horns. It would be safer if we could get past them without being seen. Got it. Give me a minute here. Kate dug in her purse for a few seconds, then pulled out her Arthana, the ceremonial casting dagger that she used to shape her magic. 
She clipped the sheath to her belt, angling the handle slightly forward so she could draw it swiftly. A bit more rummaging produced a folding pocket mirror and a small envelope of silvery white powder. Kate put the purse on the ground at her feet, then passed the mirror to John. Put that in the sunlight and bounce some over to me. Obligingly, John stepped back out of the alcove, opened the mirror, and angled it until a beam of light appeared on Kate's open palm. With her other hand, Kate poured some of the powder through the sunbeam, muttering some words in a language John didn't recognize. Then she pulled out her arthana and pointed it at the patch of light, murmuring more magic words. The spell came to life as a ripple of distortion that leapt out from Kate's upturned hand. It spread rapidly into a shimmering bubble, which filled the alcove and extended a little bit beyond it. The world outside the screen looked muted and darkened, like he was viewing it through polarized sunglasses. John passed a hand through the field, watched the ripple of air around it. Wow, what am I looking at here? Transmissive veil, Kate said, as she put her tools away. It takes most of the light that would hit us and bends it around the field. It works better than an obscuring veil when it's this bright out. John nodded, impressed. How invisible are we? She waggled her hand in a so-so gesture. It's more like we fade into the background. We're still there, but less noticeable, unless somebody's looking right at us. Try not to let anyone run into you. They headed back out onto the sidewalk, staying close to the walls of the buildings, where the crowd was thinner. As they approached, the Redeemers started up a chant. No love for false gods! No god but Eli! People around the protesters booed and hissed at them, yelled at them to shut up and go mind their own business. One man threw a drink at them, which earned him a stern lecture from one of the police officers. Kate quickened her steps, and John hurried to keep up with her. They did not slow down until they were more than a block beyond the protesters. Kate stepped into an alley and dismissed the veil with a wave of her arthana. She leaned back against the wall of one of the buildings, looking weary and quietly furious. I've never seen that kind of thing in Bridger before. That isn't who we are. John put a comforting hand on her shoulder. Places change, he said gently. She shook her head violently. Uh-uh. Not here. Not like that. Those fuckers were from out of town, I'm sure of it. Probably came in from Littlefield for the homecoming game. There's a Redeemer church out there, a pretty big one. She made a fist and wrapped it lightly against the wall beside her. They know our team's better than theirs, so they come in and crap all over our parade. What a bunch of petty bullshit. John thought back to the angry faces of the protesters, the well-practiced sound of their chants. I don't think those people care about Skyball. Religion can make people do some god-awful things. Remember the Brotherhood? This is pretty tame by comparison. Yeah, Kate said, glumly. Doesn't mean I want them in my hometown, though. I sympathize. They're behind us now, though, so we don't have to worry about them anymore. Let's just get to the skimmer and head back. After a moment, Kate nodded. Yeah, okay. 
John paid little attention to the rest of the parade, as they ducked and wove through the crowd. Thankfully, there were no more protesters, and the rest of the crowd was in high spirits. Gradually, Kate's mood brightened again, buoyed by the enthusiasm of the people around her. Music played near-continuously, from bands and from loudspeakers on the floats, with a new source rising into hearing just as the last one moved out of range. Even when the music faded, the cheers, shouts, and applause from the crowd created an ongoing background din, which made it hard to concentrate. As a result, he did not notice the power seeping through the crowd until he was already in the thick of it. What the hell? he muttered. He stopped and opened his arcane senses, straining to focus through the noise and the press of bodies around him. Kate! Kate, now about two meters ahead of him, glanced back over her shoulder. Her cheerful expression faded slowly into a frown as she saw the look of confusion on John's face. She turned around and slowly made her way back to him. More trouble? she asked, her voice low. Maybe. Check your third eye. John followed his own advice, closing his eyes and focusing on his aura sight. Yes, there was definitely something there, a pattern weaving through the auras of the people around him. It was essence, diffuse and delicate, like a network of cobwebs. Every strand touched the aura of another person, and tiny, tiny amounts of life mana flowed through each one. Further away, the strands joined together, combining their currents into something thicker and stronger. John couldn't see where they led. In his aura sight, the cloud was so vast and diffuse that it obscured any sense of its deeper structure. He was sure of one thing, though. The cloud was moving, slowly and steadily, in the same direction as the parade. John, Kate said, her voice low and wary. What am I looking at? John opened his eyes, saw Kate with her own shut tight in concentration. He scanned the crowd and the parade participants beyond them, but he still couldn't get a fix on the source. He leaned in close to her ear. There's an outsider here, he said, and they're feeding. John and Kate kept a careful watch all the way up to Fifth Street and back down Main. The web of essence was about half a kilometer long, but it extended only as far as the crowds watching the parade. Once Kate and John turned away from Main Street and down one of the side streets, the pattern disappeared. John would have dearly liked to get some altitude to see the web from above, but few of the buildings in Bridger Heights had more than two stories, and none of them offered rooftop access to the general public. In the end, they gave up and drove back toward the Catane's house, thoroughly mystified. I've never seen a feeding pattern like that before, John said. It didn't look very dangerous, Kate mused. The amount of mana it was taking was so small, I doubt the people would have felt anything. That's my point. It was so small, even multiplied by that many people. How the hell are they getting enough to survive? That's like trying to drink water through a plastic coffee stirrer. What kind of outsider was it? Kate asked. The essence was so faint I couldn't tell. I couldn't either, John admitted. 
it was focused on people, not animals or a force of nature, so that rules out a bunch of possibilities. Something about the parade-goers was opening them up to be fed on. Pleasure? Kate suggested. People were having a good time. Maybe, John said, doubtfully. But no incubus or succubus in their right mind would feed that way. You'd get more energy out of a ten-minute makeout session. He frowned, considering it. Love, maybe? I knew a Velenite once, and she could draw energy from crowds if they were together for the right reason. Folks coming together to celebrate their kids might do it. Or maybe it's about community, Kate offered. Cameloth may be dead, but his kids are still out there. A big, organized ritual that brings the whole city together could be just what they need. Good point, John said. If it was a Celestial, though, you've got to wonder why they were being so sneaky about it. Most people don't mind having an Aedra around. Redeemers do, Kate pointed out. Maybe they saw the protesters and knew they had to keep a low profile. They mulled over the possibilities in silence until they had arrived back at Sam and Lisa's house. John parked the skimmer and shut off the engine, but neither of them moved to get out of the vehicle. We might have to tell the Lightbringers about this, Kate said quietly. I know it didn't seem like it was hurting anything, but I keep thinking about that kid Chase who got sick. What if this outsider was feeding on him somehow? What if it needs a certain kind of victim, and right now it's just sort of feeling out its next meal? John had been trying not to think about that. Let's see what he looks like at the game tonight. If he's being fed on enough to hurt him, there'll be signs of it. But if the Lightbringers start poking around here, you and I are probably going to have to leave. Unless you want the whole town to know what happened to you. Yeah, Kate said, glumly. All right, no sounding the alarm unless we're sure there's trouble. She opened her door and stepped out of the skimmer, and John did likewise. Just promise me you'll tell me if you figure out what's going on here. I promise. John said. And that's the end of chapter 11. Come back next time when John, Kate, and Sam go to the Skyball game, where John makes an important discovery. Charles Dickens said, An idea, like a ghost, must be spoken to a little before it will explain itself. So dim the lights, join hands with me around the table, and let's see what my ideas have to say for themselves. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of June 27th to July 3rd. I wrote 3,411 words this week, over the course of 4.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 718 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 77 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of June, I wrote a total of 23,475 words in 25 days, averaging 939 words per day. That's my ninth best month since I started keeping track. I met my goal of writing on at least 24 days for the first time this year, I spent 35.75 hours writing in June. Compared to May, my word count increased by 72%, and my writing time increased by 63%. This week I continued working on Honor Bound, 
though I wasn't able to do as much writing as in previous weeks. I'm at another decision point in the plot, where I need to figure out which complications to throw at my characters. I've set up a lot of potential plot threads for this series, and I can't roll out all of them in this first book, or it's going to end up being an incohesive mess. I have to decide which of Chekhov's guns I should be taking down off the mantle now, and which ones I should save for the later books. As a result, my writing slowed down a bit, as I subconsciously delayed those decisions. I'm now in chapter 14, and the manuscript is over 33,500 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a preview of Carol Foote's next piece of bonus art. This one is a scene from part three of A Wizard Family Solstice. John Tunstall and Esme are walking the streets of Metamore City, taking in the Yuletide decorations. The preview is available to all patrons at the $3 level and higher. If you're a fan of what I'm doing here on the show, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. For a small monthly pledge, you can get access to exclusive artwork, author commentaries, and other behind-the-scenes goodies. Right now I'm posting the first draft of Honor Bound as I write it, so you can get the story before anyone else. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and sign up for a monthly pledge. And don't forget to check out the bonus features, like your custom RSS feed or the Metamore City Discord server. If you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't keep doing this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.